0: The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And Cobra Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in northern Victoria. And thanks to Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide. Princewinestore.com.au. <laughs> Don't Shoot the Messenger Podcast with Caroline Wilson and Cory Perkin.
1: Welcome everybody to episode 277 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with Corrie Perkin. Hello Corrie. Hi Caro, how are you going? I'm very good and I'm very excited because the Matilda's won, which means we can have a fabulous conversation about a subject close to both of our hearts. There's something happening in this country involving women and sport, and certain sports aren't quite getting behind it the way they should be, but we'll talk about that in a moment. We want to thank our sponsors. Obviously, we want to thank Australia's most trusted energy provider, Red Energy, chosen to be that way by Canstar three times, as I said. We want to thank Prince Wine Store, and Miles is coming in today with a World Cup mixed dozen Brilliant choice, Miles, And we want to welcome Cobram Estate, who are joining us for our recipe of the week, Corrie, in BSF. And as a result, Cobram Estate, obviously premium Australian extra virgin olive oil. We have both
2: made cakes involving Cobram Estate olive oil. We have week. indeed. We have indeed. We are very excited to have Cobram Estate on board. As long-time listeners to the podcast will know, Caro and I have—it's uh, always been our go-to olive oil. We've often talked about it in our recipes. We had a few jokes there about Mr. Cobram along the way. Uh, we've loved using the product, and it's just—it's just great, Caro, isn't it? When when a product that you believe in and a company that you have faith in jumps on board. With our podcast and supports us in this way. Plus, not only do we have Miss Jane's very lovely freesias, she's been walking by the side of the road again. They're not from your garden, you admitted, Jane. I bought them. (laughs) But (laughs) also, also we have three bottles of Cobram Estate olive oil here. We have the classic, we have the light, and we have the robust. So there's one each for us here in the studio. But um, thank you very much. Bags yeah. are robust.
1: <laughs> hey, um, my I know your cake involves pears. Mine was the simplest cake I've almost ever made, involving lemons. So I'm looking forward to our cake-off in BSF. A um, bit of housekeeping, Corrie. Do you want to kick us off?
2: Yeah, I will, Carol. I'll just remind Potties that we have our annual film night happening next week, Tuesday the 15th at 6 p.m., at the Brighton Palace Cinema down there in Bay Street, Brighton. And you can jump on our show notes via Facebook or indeed via your podcast provider to uh, find out the details. But, Janie, do you want to just um, give us the lowdown on what we're seeing and um, what we're hoping is going to happen? Oh, look, it's always great to actually see a movie with other people. And I know, I missed last time and
0: it was a hoot. (laughs) So it's the Miracle Club. We want everyone to come along. It's just $20 for your ticket if you want to buy a coffee or grab a glass of wine when you're there. Fun as well.
2: Um, so join us at the cinema. Don't go on your own. Come with us next Tuesday night. Exactly. And I think actually half of Caro and my own personal book club are coming along too. Caro, I had a text from the lovely, wonderful Lynn Swinburne, a friend of the pod, uh, and the founding uh the the founder of the uh, Breast Cancer Network Australia. The 25th anniversary, of course, is coming up. You and I have been invited to join the field of women on the 20th of August, the Melbourne... Um, Hawthorne match at the MCG. Unfortunately, I can't make it due to a prior commitment. Not sure whether you're going. But Linny said... I am going to be there with bells on girl. and I'm horrified you won't be there to watch
1: your club. Well, I know. Against old I, club. I, look, the
2: timing of this is appalling. I know I'm organising a golf tournament, which in itself is a joke because I can't really play golf all that well. What am I doing organising 24 golfers? But I am and it's a weekend away, so I'm very sorry I can't be there. But Lynn says Hi guys, just realised the World Cup final will be held on the same date. Our event is before the AFL match in the Arvo. And the Sydney final, of course, is at 8pm, but it's going to be hard cutting through. So, Linny, we are very happy to pass on the details of this event. The ticket price will get everybody into the MCG, of course, into onto arena access. Uh, you have general admission seats and the Field of Women gift pack, which I imagine, Caro, includes one of those beautiful pink ponchos. Just jump on to bcna.org.au for details about that
1: great event. It is fabulous. We did the first one together at the MCG. I did the second one at the MCG. I've also done it out at Homebush in Sydney, and it is an extraordinary experience. It's incredibly moving. And we are so looking forward to it.
0: And you can also, ladies, virtually join the field of women. So if you're listening from interstate and going, oh, I so wish I could be there, can't get to Melbourne, if you head to pinkladymatch.com.au, I'll put the link in the show notes, you can actually virtually buy your place and in spirit and virtually represent yourself on the MCG. So
1: that's a lot of information to unpack, but as a reminder again, the Miracle Club, August the 15th, next Tuesday, six o'clock at the Brighton Bay Palace Cinema. Corrie, thanks to Catherine via email who asked for my Amsterdam suggestions for her family trip. Um, She checked out a number of them. I'm so glad you went to Cafe Brandon, that beautiful old brown bar, Catherine, and um, I gathered that... um, the uh, owner was very chuffed to hear that he'd been mentioned on an Aussie podcast. <laughs> and thank you for that gorgeous Samus. picture of your dinner at Ducasse. One, I was there again last month. It is just one of the more wonderful restaurants in Europe. Really glad you enjoyed that. And Belinda B, look, Belinda B had a few issues with my musaka recipe that came from my friend Tanya. I don't know whether you did the 10-eats one or the second one that was the correct one. It's complex. It does take a bit of time, a bit like my pumpkin and ricotta and sage lasagna that I mentioned a few weeks ago. I reckon it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. It's a complete crowd pleaser.
2: Persevere, we say. Persevere, Persevere. in the kitchen. Caro, let's talk Australian women and our um, international sporting heroes. Well, it's just, you know, as
1: as we sit here and talk today, um, the Matildas have beaten Denmark 2-0. Sam Kerr got a run late in the game. It was interesting, I was on Offsiders on Sunday with um, a really good cast hosted by Kelly Underwood and um, I made the point that I felt that we just needed to get to know our Matildas a bit better and Simon Hill, who is sort of the voice of so- women's soccer and soccer really here in Australia, um, he made the ABC English English born in England commentator He said that's just not the way World Cups are done. Players are kept very much behind closed doors and there is a real media wall. But, you know, I think, as I said, if the Matildas keep winning, no one's going to care. To think that 75,000 people turned out on a Monday night, 75,000 on a Monday night in Sydney. So... The, the biggest crowds now um, is, is another soccer-related crowd. And, of course, the biggest crowd ever was that event that happened. Um, it was a Cricket World Cup here at the MCG, and it was put on, I think it was in 2020, and it was literally a week or two before Victoria shut down with COVID. And thank heavens it went ahead because that still is the record for the biggest crowd, 90-something thousand fans came into the MCG. But that people are turning up in these numbers and watching free-to-air TV when it is on free-to-air TV in these numbers just speaks volumes, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it was a fantastic game. It was – I know the team and the coach said afterwards they were not quite playing to their full 100%. But um, – and I'm not sure what was happening with Denmark. They seemed a little lacklustre. But the excitement when Sam Kerr took off her tracksuit top standing standing on the boundary line – ready to come on or we hoped that she was coming on uh it it started it started in the second half midway through with that and it just kept building and building well it started with it started at the very beginning i mean let's well, face it at goal the very beginning to run of play was just extraordinary oh my goodness me it was just it was just such a it was just such a, an exciting game and there are so many things that we can talk about um this Particular series and its contribution, I imagine, to um, women's and girls' soccer. But I just kept thinking about my eldest grandchild, Hattie, who is prep, grades uh, six years of age. And I was up in Ballarat for a couple of days over the weekend and we were chatting about uh, Aussie rules, and her dad, Charlie, is very keen to enrol her. And uh, soccer is also an option. I think it's fantastic that she actually has these two options. Because when you and I were growing up, that was never considered. Never considered. No,
1: and, and look, we, we speak today on a day that just days after our uh, Diamonds have won the Netball World Cup, beating England after losing to England in an earlier playoff. They made their way through beating Jamaica. And of course, um, now they are in, well, well they've, won, they've won the World Cup. So that it was an extraordinary Event, um the cricket team retained the ashes, um not the men's cricket team, they did it, they did as well, but our women's cricket team.
2: And it's just I have the ratings figures if you wanted to hear them, I don't Go know if you know them. So we're recording this on Tuesday morning potty, so this is last night's uh, Matilda's match against Denmark, and more than three point five million people watched it on Channel Seven and three hundred and eighty five thousand on seven plus streaming service. So that's a pretty extraordinary number of Australians who have engaged immediately with women's sport. <laughs> who would have thought? Who would have thought? Extraordinary.
1: Um, it's just extraordinary. And you mentioned AFL, AFLW, and the AFL should be really worried about what's happening at the moment. I agree. Now, what what is happening is that clearly women's sport is cutting through, so that is a good thing. But the AFL have had a... At the moment, um, the AFL and the AFL Players Association are locked in a pay dispute for the next collective bargaining agreement. And the biggest issue that is holding up a resolution is what the women want. What they want is basically something like two, two and a half percent of the game's revenue, overall revenue. And the view of the AFLPA, who took for, took a while to get on board with the women, think that that is reasonable. The AFL think it isn't. The women footballers, AFL women's footballers, only found out in the last month what their fixture was going to be. They've put out a fixture as to where the grand final is going to be, depending on which which club qualifies to host the grand final. Now, Corrie, in the first year or second year of the AFLW, um the Crows won the grand final and more than 50,000 people went to Adelaide Oval to watch that game. This year, if the Crows host the grand final, Adelaide Oval isn't available and it's going to be at one of the suburban sandful grounds. Now, why are we shrinking the game? I, I don't understand that. I understand that the the women's game is a long way to go. It is still a development league, but all 18 clubs are involved now. All clubs have a women's team. It is part of... They have a footy department soft cap. The AFL is subsidising clubs to fast-track the careers of women coaches because there aren't enough women coaches. They're doing some things really well, but they're lagging. The women want a longer season. They're not going to get it this year. They're only going to get 10 rounds in a four-week final series. And I just... There's still dispute over when is the best time to launch the series. Well, it's going to be launched in that bye round at the end of August, the start of September, when there's no footy before the final start. And that's great because the women will get clean air, as they say. But at the moment, looking at what you can achieve as a Matilda and in some of the international leagues, you know, some of the um, big European and, and obviously Premier League clubs, there's a, some, and you know, Australian soccer hasn't really got its act together in terms of the local leagues compared to the AFL or the NRL, but the NRL are going along in leaps of bounds with their women. And at the moment, the public perception is the AFL game is not great to watch. The clubs were told at the, one of the more recent CEO's president's meeting that, the ratings aren't good, the T V numbers are really down, the crowds are really down. So they're talking it down in a way to oh, keep Oh
2: and, and you know, can I dare I say probably ninety percent of the people around the table are men saying this too. How many AFLW games are they going to? Are they feeling the energy? Look, well, there, Car- no, there, there is problems with the game. But, and and oh, there no, are rules and they Carol, probably I, should have.
1: And I agree. There I, are rules they should have changed. But the women at the moment are feeling diminished. I, and,
2: I, and I absolutely understand this. Look, to compare it with what's happening with the Matildas and soc- women's soccer is not is a bit of an unfair comparison because, of course, soccer has women's soccer has um, grassroots threads going back to the late seventies. Um, but we in, know, we so know. So does AFLW. It's just not well, international. It, well, it's not international, but certainly it was not. I mean, footy was not played in the seventies at my school among girls, but um, but you know, in the eighties, soccer was. You know, this is a really this is a this is a long term project. I mean, I mentioned Harriet, who's six. We want Harriet in ten years to. Or Fifteen years to be able to enter a competition, an AFLW competition, if she so wants to, and if she's talented, that is strong and robust, and and um, and successful. And there are just so many hurdles. I think that that um, anybody connected with AFLW ha- have to overcome. And I have to point the finger at a lot of men. There's still discrimination. There's enormous pay inequality. Sponsorship is an issue. Media coverage. I mean, the mansplaining that goes on and the condescension sometimes. We've got a good
1: example. We've got a good example of that. And I had a crack at the Collingwood CEO, long-time sporting player, manager, premiership player, entrepreneur, AFL partner. That's a key, long-time AFL partner when um, he ran his management company. Craig Kelly was interviewed on the ABC about 10 or 12 days ago. And Kelly Underwood, it was a pretty line and length interview until Kelly Underwood asked him a question about why AFL isn't showing the foresight and strategic big thinking that soccer and cricket did with their women's sports when they started to expand. This is a bit of what happened.
3: Feels like it's plateaued. Are you happy with the 10 games? Oh, Kel, you've gone down a rabbit hole. I'm not sure you wanted to go down. Why is that? Well, because I keep hearing this. And stop saying it, you and others. Right. Stop saying we've got it wrong. We're actually, what we're doing is we came out of COVID. We've got, there's only a certain amount of money that goes around. So how much every time we put on another game of football.
1: Yeah, a weekend costs $2 million. Costs a lot of money.
3: It. So what we've got but to do. But what about the women's lives minute, on, and on, how they c- negotiate girl, living? Let me finish. When we started, when I started, we did two days a week of training. Mm and we headed towards being a professional athlete. It took 15, 20 years. We've done in eight years what took 15 to 20 years way back then when we, did, when we, when we went from AFL, VFL into AFL. So what I'm saying is we're on the right pathway. The marketing and what's going to happen with the AFL this year is going to be so much better. Where we play the games, consistency will be so much better. The focus is there, but we've got to come on the journey. We can't just squeeze the lemon and just start handing out cash that we haven't got as a whole competition. Let's not compare the women's game to the men's game. The fun that our girls have, every training, the music and all the stuff that happens is amazing. People who were there that night at the game and saw the interview,
1: saw some finger pointing. Craig Kelly stood up during most of the interview. He basically said to Kelly, you don't want to go down this rabbit hole. You don't want to go down this rabbit hole. Which is kind of slightly threatening. Well, I don't think it was threatening. It was just condescending and it was boorish, quite frankly.
2: I'm just Um, sick of it. You know what? I'm just sick of it. AFLW, the league has invested. The league has made the decision. For God's sake, everybody, get behind it. It's going to take years to grow. We need the coaches. We need the training programs. Crowd numbers will come. If anything, Matildas has proved that. Crowd numbers will come. The old Kevin Costner field of dreams build and they will come.
1: Oh, I do look, I do think there are there are issues with the style of game, and I think that is something that needs to be worked on. But the fact that you've got the clubs and the culture of AFL and so many women making their way into commentary and into administration, not as many as there should be, but certainly the numbers are much bigger now. You know we've got, I mean, at the top, you know we've got, At the moment, I think we've got three AFL club presidents of women. And, you know, when Peggy O'Neill was still there, there were four. So that's not a bad number. needs to get better. And every club now, it's been years since clubs didn't – no club um, had had women board members. But there's a long way to go. And – I think there'd be people at Collingwood who would have been a bit concerned by
2: some of those Craig Kelly comments. Oh, I think so too. Carol, I don't know whether you or Miss Jane saw this report by Fox Sports. It came out last year and it was was a research uh, document and it revealed the popularity of women's sport. And it said it has risen with 66% of Aussies having tuned in to watch women's sport on TV. Of those who noted a change in viewership, viewership, sixty nine percent have increased their consumption of women's sport since pre pandemic, so that's that's um that's a terrific trajectory, and you you cement it with oh with the diamonds on the weekend. I know a lot of people. Oh, a lot of some people in my household go oh netball women's netball really but a win is a win you know we we'll well, the, the game
1: was at 2 a.m. so we had to be really <laughs> dedicated to watch that one but the cricket is extraordinary and and Kelly Underwood made the point with Craig Kelly these other yes they might be international they're different sports but both women's soccer and certainly cricket took big risks um, with their media coverage the, the deals they made the strategy they made to expand and they've paid off yeah, paid off big time. And
2: just on the uh, on the Matildas, go girls. And can I just say, what a hero, what a terrific player Mary Fowler is. I I love it. Whenever I see the ball go to Mary, I enter a happy space. What about Donald Trump when the
1: Americans went out? He basically oh. blamed the Biden administration. I think, anyway, those poor American girls who came in as strong one of the strong favourites to have bowed out, which has been a bit of a shock. Germany's another one. There's been a few surprises, but... Um, Canada too, who were the Olympic medalists who Australia beat in the last of the pool games. Well,
2: but we're not um, saying that the Matildas are the Stephen Bradbury of the, of the World Cup, but it is it does work in our favour. No, they've, <laughs> they've,
1: they've played some good footy and I'm really glad, well, I was just glad they made it to the round of 16 because no host nation has ever failed to do that. But now they're through to the quarterfinals, which is unbelievable. And now, thanks to Prince Wine Store and Miles Thompson who is with us in the studio again. It is time for the cocktail cabinet and talk about topical miles. We've just been talking about the Matildas and among other things, all things women's sport. But um, you've got a Prince Wine Store World Cup mixed
4: dozen. Correct. I've been inspired by the Matildas and the, the women's soccer in general, and it's I mean it's pretty awesome. Uh, What we're sort of seeing at the moment, and yeah, so I've put together a dozen wines with, um, well, it's actually wine. There's some beers, there's some sake in there, so match the countries from the various teams.
2: Oh, I was going to ask what the premise was, mm. Miles. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Well, as we're talking,
4: it was really fun.
1: Sorry to interrupt. Sorry, Miles. As we're talking, we've got four or five nights to get ready for late Saturday when the Matildas play their next game. Two wines a night. Yeah, no, you, um, we're, we're throwing. We're throwing you. You're um, talking
2: to someone who's doing slightly dry August here. So
1: one's it's a
4: sake and one's a beer, so that's okay.
1: We're throwing a theoretical party on Saturday to watch our girls. Good. Tell us what we're going to be drinking.
4: Yeah. So well, I, so the way it worked out, I, I, I gave the uh, the Aussies the home team advantage, the home turf advantage. So they get two wines. So I picked the two Aussie wines. I thought I'd talk about those because they're both really good and they're not. Crazy expensive and they're delicious. Brilliant. So the first one is uh, Forest Hill Highbury Fields Cabernet. Uh, now Forest Hill, uh, they're actually based in WA, but they're not Margaret River, they're Franklin River, which is a bit further east and south. It's a little bit cooler, slightly different style wines, uh, but we love the wines from Forest Hill. They're always awesome. They make fantastic Riesling. Their Cabernets are really good. Their Shiraz is really fantastic as well. Um, And this is just a really sort of beautiful rendition of of a mid-weight sort of style Cabernet, lovely sort of chocolate mint and that beautiful kind of like herb bay leaf and that lovely dark sort of plum fruit. Chocolate mint. Yeah, it's not super minty. Some Aussie wines can be a bit too minty. It's not that. It's just got that little hint of that mint, that lovely kind of cocoa chocolate thing, that lovely Cabernet sort of warm, dark plush fruit.
2: Sounds like a good one for... 8.30 30 in the morning.
4: Perfect. Oh, Every time we are.
2: <laughs> so day. the no, forest. Still perfect
1: I for never winter. Never stopped
4: us drinking before. before
1: the forest. On, we're, the show. we're on tea and coffee at the moment, Miles. And am to stop that. So it's a Forest Hill Highbury Fields Cabernet. How yeah. much
4: does this so cost? That's $25. Brilliant. So fa- really fantastic value. And the other one is the Ministry of Clouds Carignan Grenache. And it's from the McLaren Vale. Now we're big Ministry of Fans at Prince. We've always liked what they do. Um, they mainly work out of McLaren. They do make some stuff out of Tassie and a few other places, Uh Um, but McLaren's really sort of where they're at. This is fantastic McLaren Val Grenache, and it's blended with Carignan. Now, Carignan you normally see as a minor blending varietal in a lot of these Rhone-style wines or these Grenache-based wines. You don't see it too often, maybe a little more in Europe than you do in Australia, but it's very, very spicy kind of white pepper, really zingy. So they usually use it just to kind of add a bit of, Crunch and sort of bite, particularly to Grenache, which can be quite soft and plush. And in Australia, it's got that really lovely sweet sort of red plush fruit. So you get that, and you get that lovely sort of spicy, crunchy hit from the Carignan. It is such a good wine. When we try it, we put it on pour at at uh, Bolotta, and I couldn't help but put it in the pack because it's such a stellar wine. It's just very Moorish.
2: It's just it so deli- easy. It it's sounds like delicious. Ministry it's literally slippery of clouds. and raspberry I l- I, love the, I, l- I just love the the title of the vineyard as well. I think that's just beautiful. Yeah, it's
4: Ministry of Clouds. Yeah, yeah very cool. great
2: title. Yeah. They, do they have a good label?
4: Yeah, I like the labels. M- really modern, but but really well done. Oh, like modern, but kind of Mc- under- understated. You can't go
1: wrong in McLaren Vale, I reckon. It's yeah, just a great region.
4: McLaren's just really really kind of killing it at the moment they're they're just so many good wines and lots of really good winemakers and thoughtful producers and has some really incredible old vine uh grenache in particular but shiraz as well and you know there's people like Stephen pennell and others who are like buying up these old vineyards that might have been grubbed up for you know other bits and pieces and sort of restoring them or you know just kind of getting them back on track so we're starting to see some really awesome stuff come out of mclaren and then all the like New, sort of the, you know, Tempranillos and the things that you see there as well. Those sort of Mediterranean varietals are really cool too. So such a great place to drink from. But maybe, Ministry of Clouds, anything you buy from them is fantastic. Maybe we could
2: do a Don't Shoot the Messenger Prince Wine Store, Miles, Carol, and Corrie on the bus tour to McLaren. McLaren Vale for three days. Yeah. So that'd be pretty fantastic.
4: I missed the last Prince Wine Store trip to McLaren. I didn't get invited.
2: Well, you can organise your own with Michael.
4: us. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, a bunch Ma- of others. Michael, very good, lift. But... <laughs> Miles
1: needs to get on the road and so do we. So he how much is Europe this beautiful Grenache? Ago, so I can't
2: compl- no, you can't. Yeah, <laughs> you did go to Italy <laughs> You it went to us. Italy during
1: COVID. I know. You were very <laughs> well, Just fortunate.
4: after, yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: Um, how much is the Ministry Cloud's uh, Grenade?
4: 31, so really great value too.
1: These are two great wines. Yes, yeah,
4: support Front of the, Aussies. the fire.
1: Matildas are playing. Support the Matildas. Hopefully making their way through to the semifinals. Yes. Wouldn't it be exciting? I know. I've Wouldn't done it?
2: a terrible... I, I've pulled out of something on Saturday night because of um, the outcome of the women's <laughs> soccer. I that's, think that's, that's all right, isn't
4: it? I think so.
1: Surely wherever you would go would have it on, though.
2: Well, you never know. But I, you know me, Carol. It's like the grand final. Who other than me, likes to watch the grand final on their own. I love to be completely immersed in a sporting event sure. on television. So no distractions. I it's mean, Academy Awards, when... I, always, I never come to your Academy a, Awards night.
1: Oh, that's something you can sort of speak through. I don't think I couldn't speak through a footy game. I agree with that. It's really annoying. Really annoying. Anyway, Fair so uh, do you want to give us a, is there a beer you can throw in as well?
4: Yeah. So the, uh, it's, so it's an it's a English beer. It's I'm called, worried
2: about your yeah. sudden interest in beer, Caroline, since <laughs> you've done
1: Dry July. I'd, well, no, because beer, non-alcoholic style, is actually quite drinkable, mm. whereas wine isn't. Oh, well, there's
2: just been a bit of a beer focus oh, from you. beer.
1: Well, the Poms <laughs> might well be in those quarterfinals, so it's probably good yeah. we've got an English beer. T-
4: Timothy Taylor's... We'll, so uh, we'll, might be
1: in the semifinals, I should say. Yeah. Go on.
4: Timothy Taylor's... Um Oh, I can't remember the name of it, Timothy or something. It's a, it's a, it's a pale ale. And for those who've maybe not had some of these proper classic English beers, they're a little less carbonated than sort of the stuff we see here in Australia. Yeah. They're a little sort of smoother, like richer, a little bit more mellow. They're not that really sort of hop-driven, sort of in-your-face style that the sort of Americans made sort of popular over here. So really lovely sort of mellow beer. Of course, they would probably serve it warm over there. You could take it out of the fridge and let it warm up if you wanted, but. Uh, Yeah, Timothy Taylor's. And it's a 500ml bottle, so a little bit extra in it for you. how much does that cost? I think that's only $10. Sounds pretty good. Classic English ale. So if you've never had a really good sort of English beer, they are fantastic. I have never.
2: Okay, so I have never in my life ever had a glass of beer. Oh. Ever. Ever. Ever, ever, ever.
1: It's just un Do you not like beer at all?
2: (laughs) No, I don't like it. I don't like it. It wasn't as well, though I had enough. a bad episode as a child yeah, yeah, or anything I was just like that. Curious. My dad used to like a beer at about that six o'clock on a weekend. Mm. If you know, if they were around at home, mum and dad were usually out on the weekends. But always loved the beer before dinner. I would have a sip as a child. Yuck! Never liked it. Isn't that funny?
4: I never liked what it as a kid, but I've really grown to love it. It's um. <laughs> I mean, it's not the alcohol either. It's something about a hot day and a cold beer. Yeah. I mean,
1: that's. Yeah, it's hard to beat. And when, in my London years, lager and lime, that was a really Mm. nice drink. Lager with a touch of lime juice, which is pretty bogan now I look back at it, but I loved it.
4: When I started working, I moved to Canada for a few years in my sort of late 20s and was working in a restaurant there. And there's a a very great sort of uh, um, British Columbia beer. They make a lot of really good beer in that sort of southwest corner. Um, And it's called Russell Lemon Lager. So it's already infused with, with lemons. And it is in summer, nice and cold, straight out of the tap. I was a bit like, "Oh, lemon fruit beer? What are you talking?" And then I had one on a hot day, and I was just like, oh, I'm "How con- delicious!" Converted? Do you sell, Absolutely do you converted. sell that or a product? like No, that at I, I, I keep talking about maybe trying to bring in some of these con- British Columbia beers in particular because they've got such a great little that their brewing's really good down there. They make some really cool beers. So maybe one day, but yeah, Michael? I don't think the
2: Russell comes in, <laughs> Michael. That's your second <laughs> well, bit of got homework. a you. <laughs>
4: Uh, so maybe British Columbia, maybe that's a that's Yeah, a trip. BC beer, really. I worked at a place that served nothing but British Columbia beer on tap. It was like 40 beers on tap. Very, very cool.
2: Miles, so, when you say in your late 20s, that was like a minute ago, at looking oh, at the well, youth yeah. of yeah. Sure, you. of course
4: it was. That's correct.
1: <laughs> Miles, the Prince World Cup Mixed Dozen sounds absolutely brilliant. Yep. There's some great recommendations there. The Forest Hills Highbury Fields Cabernet. The Ministry of Clouds Grenache from McLaren Canyon Vale. Yeah. Yes, and um, and the Timothy Taylor Pale Ale. Yeah. Brilliant. Yum. Thank you so much for coming in, and thank you for Prince Wine to Prince Wine Store. Remember to use the promo code M E That's short for Messenger, in capital letters at checkout for your ten percent listener discount. And remember that Prince can arrange delivery to anywhere in Australia or interstate. Well, obviously interstate because it's <laughs> anywhere in Australia. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Now, Corrie, it is time to do an extended version, thanks to Red Energy and Cobram Estate of BSF. We're so excited that we've got two books, two screens and two recipes.
2: Let's kick off with your book. Okay, Caro, this is a, a lovely non-fiction book called A House Full of Daughters, A Memoir of Seven Generations. I don't know whether you've read it. It came out a couple of years ago by Juliet Nicholson. It's been in my... Uh, I have read it. You gave uh, it to
1: me for a trip a few years ago.
2: Yeah, I, I love this book. Um, and um, Juliet Nicholson, as many people will be familiar with, her family, her grandmother was Vita Sackville West, Uh, who married, of course, the very famous Harold Nicholson. Their marriage has been documented by their son, Juliet's father, Nigel Nicholson. And um, in this book, what Juliet does is she unpacks uh, the story of her family through the story of the women, all extraordinary women, seven generations of women. It goes back to the 19th century slums of Spain Um, It follows her great-grandmother, Pepita, who was uh, a ballet dancer uh, of some note who married English gentry. And um, it ends up, of course, with Juliet herself, uh, a mother of daughters and very close relationship with her father. And as she reveals toward the end of this book, has had her own struggles with alcoholism Terrible struggles, as
1: did Vita Sackville-West. We find out in the book.
2: It's really, it's a really, uh, it's it's really, it's a bit like um, you know. I was telling you when I reviewed the Susanna Constantine memoir a few months ago. Susanna, who's our age and who was a bit of an it girl in the eighties, she went out with Lord Linley, um, Princess Margaret's son, and um, and was a successful columnist, and she was part of the Trinian Susanna. Um, What Not to Wear series, Susanna also had a terrible struggle with alcoholism. And I find these stories of women who are um, good communicators, terrific writers, but are also sort of honest about themselves and inquiring where where might this have come from? Was there anything in my family, my makeup, my DNA, my childhood that might have set me on this course? I love that sort of story. There's
1: There's a house in the south of France that plays a big part in the book early on. I think either Pepita or maybe Pepita's daughter. They 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 lived there during the war. That's right. I uh, don't think it's there anymore, but it just looks so beautiful.
2: Look, it's it, this, it, it, this book is, um, you know, like there there are a whole lot of people who are Vita for West fans, and and for sort of obvious reasons, they're going to love this particular book, but it's also uh, it is also a generational looking back and and what kind of makes makes a family, and. I mean, as one of the reviewers said, the Nicholson family and the Vita Sackville-West story has been told and written about many times, but never with this focus on the daughters. And it does make for troubling reading, but it is such an interesting, interesting story, and well worth the journey. And as I said, we go, out, we we span two centuries, um, and of course, Knoll, which is the um, which is the old Vita Sackville-West, the, the old Sackville-West property, the the stately home of England is a big part of it, as is Sissinghurst, which of course is where Vita Sackville West um, built her beautiful garden. And Juliet grew up there as a child. There are some wonderful happy memories that she reflects upon, having spent time around Sissinghurst and then this terrific relationship with her father, particularly as he's ageing and then as he comes close to death. I find that very moving. So it's a great book, thoroughly recommend A House Full of Daughters by Juliet Nicholson. Now, what have you been reading? Well, I have
1: just finished Best of Friends by Camilla Shamsie, uh, who obviously wrote Home Fires, which was a brilliant book, an absolutely brilliant book, set in London largely, um, a lot of tragedy in that, which was sort of about um, the grooming of um, terrorists, but, you know, around a family story too, which was absolutely brilliant. This book, I'll be honest, it's not as good.
2: No, I agree. A but book of two halves, don't you think?
1: It's a complete book of two halves, but it was ultimately really satisfying to me. Um, the first half of the book is set in Karachi in Pakistan, two young girls who were best friends at a private girls' school. Um, both are – well, one, one is particularly upwardly – one is upwardly mobile and one comes from the sort of landed gentry, so-called, so of Karachi. Um, so their names are Miriam and Zara. One's father is a cricket commentator and they have done pretty well. The other one comes from a long line, a very wealthy family um, and they're leather merchants. And um, one of the girls is going to inherit the family business and run it. And the other girl is just a brilliant scholar. Uh, something happens at a party towards the end of their school days that changes their lives and, and shapes their lives in a way forever. Um Roles
2: are played. Just, just on that spot without doing a spoiler alert. Did you feel it was it, it, it rang true that it was legitimate? Yep, I okay.
1: did. Yep. I Interesting. did. Um, it involved fear, it involved a horrible situation involving men, and it's not upsetting or gruesome or anything like that. But you it's feel it's menacing, isn't it? You feel the menace as to what happens to them, and the roles of the two girls somehow swap around. And the one who is really to blame—is she really to blame? Anyway, it shapes their lives, and what happens is that one is sent to England, to London, to boarding school. The other one stays behind. They um, fast forward thirty years to London, um, sort of maybe about I don't know ten years ago, and um, one—the one who was going to run the family business—is now a very, very successful businesswoman in tech. Very, very successful. The other one is a a very, very famous public figure in human rights. Both have links to the government. Both have links to big business. Both
2: of them, dare I say, seem to have fabulous wardrobes too.
1: Both have amazing wardrobes. They get together every Sunday for a long walk. They're still the best of friends. Their lives have gone in completely different directions personally, but it is just extraordinary the way their lives have panned out. Um, everything comes to a head at a cricket game at Lords involving England versus Pakistan. One of the girls was a great junior woman cricketer, you know, quite relevant, given what we've just been talking about. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about Imran Khan, who incidentally was in, um, sentenced to 3 months jail as, for corruption the other indeed. day. Don't know how long, don't know what's going to happen there. But anyway, the epic story sort of takes a lot of twists and turns. And in the end, it comes back to what happened that night back in Karachi. And it's some. Um very, very confronting what mm. happens to them at the very end of the book.
2: I'm interested that you say you didn't enjoy it as much as Home Fire and that of course is the book. I think it that... was just a little bit slow. Yeah, yeah the I second half, hu- I agree. But I Home Fire, if, if people haven't read Home Fire, we've reviewed it before on this program it won the 2018 Women's Prize for Fiction and it really put Camilla Shamsey on the map certainly here in Australia and in fact she came out and um, did a couple of events at the Wheeler Centre and I was fortunate enough to meet her. She is such a charming um, warm, super, super person, and um, I was really looking forward to this book, Best of Friends. And I'm not sure why I was disappointed. I think you're right; it's a bit slow at the end. Um, I kind of wanted it to be as good as Home Fire. It's, doesn't that so often happen?
1: Yeah, and, it, and it, it, look, it's a very, very good book. It's a great exploration of great a friendship book club book, don't you think? Yes, and it's you know it's about really also ideological differences between two women, which they've managed to overcome for a long, long time. And both of them do things they're not proud of. And both of them have a darker side. And yet this friendship that has been so strong and bound them together for so long is suddenly challenged in the most massive of ways towards the end of the book. And I won't say what happens, but no, look, I still really enjoyed it. But yes, some of it could have done with a bit of an edit. But look, I did really, really enjoy it. Anyway, that's... Best of Friends by Camilla Shampsey and Corrie has told us about House of Daughters
2: by Juliet Nicholson. Now, Corrie, I've been to see Oppenheimer. Oh, great. It's, and no uh, ma- no mention, as you said last week, of Sir Mark Oliphant.
1: Yes. Well, it leaves out um, some of the British and the Australian involvement in the development of the atomic bomb, but it is a, I, I think it's a masterpiece. Really? I think it's a masterpiece. Tell why. Well, the performances are elite. The... It, it it's done in a surround sound. People say you should go and see it in an IMAX. I saw it at the good old Cinema Como. It is deafening at times, and a lot of the the sound effects are what is going on in Oppenheimer's mind. And and how good is Killian Murphy? He's absolutely brilliant. God, he's mesmerising. The the two key women are and played I'm, by Florence Pugh, who, who I love, who is brilliant, and of and Emily Blunt, who is also brilliant in this both in their way, very complicated women who play the major roles in Oppenheimer's life. Um, I didn't really know about um, the Manhattan Project and what happened at, at Santa Fe. It was just... And you know, I didn't know that it was the Oppen- the Oppenheimer farm that he shared with his brother, which gave him the idea to go and start all this testing and to do the development of the bomb out there. It is... It was just an extraordinary story. It starts in Europe and in London in the 1920s. The cast. Oh, Tom Conti's in it. Tom Conti. Do you remember Glittering Prices yes, on he, the BBC? Absolutely. When We all and fell in love with him. Yeah, and
2: he's Albert Einstein. Oh, he bobs up fabulous. as Albert
1: Einstein. Um, Gary Oldman bobs up as um, Eisenhower. Um, there there is some absolutely brilliant performances Um who oh look there, there are so many great actors in it. I can't go through them. Oh, all.
2: Gary Oldman plays Harry Truman, the yes, president. Sorry, I
1: said Eisenhower. I'm sorry, he <laughs> plays Truman. Josh Hartnett. Back. Josh Hartnett is one of the major players. Rami there, Malek. Rami Malek plays a key role, but a very small role late in the film. Probably the biggest, the, the bigger, the one of the greatest performances is by Robert Downey Jr., who plays a very shadowy character who starts at, we we meet him early on in the film and he plays a major role in oppenheimer's downfall towards the end of the film it's about the it, it's about the development of the bomb and all of that stuff even though we know what happens we know what happens with japan and incidentally the film is going to be shown in japan but they still haven't announced a date when it's going to open and i think this must be a very <coughs> complex situation for the japanese but um the European misfits, really, a lot of them emigrates from basically, you know, escaping the Holocaust, really, escaping Nazi Germany and escaping other parts of Europe, come to America. Um, the big sort of question, really, is was Oppenheimer, first of all, I mean, he was—he became one of the last real victims of the McCarthy witch hunts. Was he a communist? His downfall is very much surrounds that. Um, you find out the truth and it is, it is pretty... This film makes a very, very strong case that what happened to him was absolutely shameful, just absolutely shameful. It is a a brilliant film. The special effects are just extraordinary. Um, The nuclear side of the story is extraordinary and what goes on at this town, they basically build from nowhere at Los Alamos where Oppenheimer really becomes the sheriff. And there are so many sort of scientists who come in and actually take part in the development of these, all the different scientific theories. I mean, you don't really understand what's going on, except they do it in a way that makes it absolutely fascinating. And the human drama is so fascinating.
2: I can't wait. I I did see Barbie.
1: Matt Damon is also absolutely brilliant in it. And he plays, he basically is a military boss who brings in Oppenheimer despite some serious misgivings about his personal life, about his political beliefs. Um, because he does try and unionize the, um, basically the scientists who are all studying at Berkeley. It, look, it's it's just remarkable. This film it is it is over three hours, but the people I went with absolutely loved it too, and we all went home and Googled madly.
2: Um, mm, I love a movie that does that, and um, I mysteries. imagine you, imagine there are Academy Award nominations in this caro. Oh, there definitely will be. I mean, Matt Damon is absolutely brilliant. Robert Downey Jr.
1: Cillian Murphy. There's so many great performances. So many great performances. Um, I, I just can't go through all the, the people that just bob up in it who would have been so keen to did appear. You, did
2: you miss me saying that I went and saw Barbie? Yes, you're looking. You're looking a bit crestfallen. Mm. Um, seven out of ten <coughs> for me. I took the two little girls, so perhaps I was looking at it through their lens. Um, Harriet was glued. Didn't really get it, but was glued by the, I mean, the set design, the costumes, it's all extraordinary. The music, it's wonderful. Willow was bored. I tend to, you know, she, about the... How um, old's Willow? She's four. Yeah, a bit So young. would be suggesting that she's bit probably young. a bit young, but at the, about the 35 minute mark um, of the first quarter, <laughs> she was, she was ready to, to go home. But, um... I tried to give it my best shot, Carol. I know it's just clocked up a billion dollars. Congratulations to all the females involved in this extraordinary effort. I celebrate it for what it is. Ryan Gosling well, is. Yeah, I know. I'm thinking. I'm thinking of directors and producers. And, oh yeah, and Margot Robbie and Greta. Yeah. Uh, what's her name? Can't Gerwig. remember. Thank you, but. Um, Yeah, it was just, you know, when I saw La La Land and you and I were on a completely different highway with that one. I loved La 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 Land. I know, I think we're on slightly different highways with Barbie. But anyway, um, just if you are thinking of taking children, probably six is your minimum age, I would suggest. Not everybody I know loved
1: it. In fact, a couple of friends bowed me up after last week's podcast and said, I can't believe you love Barbie. But other people just went. I was blown away by it, and I want to go and see it again, as I do. I want to take Brendan to Oppenheimer because I missed some of the lines in it, and I missed some of the some of the writing in Barbie is very clever.
2: Mm. Well, I'll go to Oppenheimer with you, so long as you don't give
1: anything away. Well, we do know that they dropped two bombs. Well. <laughs> No,
2: I mean, sorry, I'm not laughing about that. And just, just, like that, that's just very bad taste. What, what is very clever but is the Cara, way you do have a tendency to often want to tell, like, not give the plot away, but then, of course, you leave me guessing and suspended. And, uh, but I will go with you because I want to talk about it with you, especially if you've seen it for the second time. Well, I so think can we do a diary date on that? We will. I think the success, if I have to
1: sum up, because it is a major film, is the way they deal with the ideological struggle that happens, not only for Robert Oppenheimer himself, but others close to him. And there's no clean-cut answer, which Mm. is why it's so clever. What are we creating? Which is why it's so clever. And, um, look, it's a brilliant film.
2: Now, Corrie, you've been watching TV. I have. So uh, we were given the tip on the weekend on Saturday by our friends Helly and Nick, Drops of God, on Apple TV. And so, of course, Sunday night for... Episodes in to I think it's an eight part series. Caro, you will love this. You will love this. It is a first class production, and it's the story of uh, a family drama. It's a family drama, but it's set around wine collection and the wine industry. Alexandra Legere, who is a famous French uh, wine writer, has is dying. And he, ha- he leaves behind this massive private collection of extraordinary wine, estimated to be, oh God, you know, over $150 million. But it, in the film, the solicitor, when he's telling um, the estranged daughter who f- travels from France to Tokyo to be with it, the dying father, and, of course, the father passes away. Um, he's reading out the uh, the terms of the will and he says this is the biggest collection, the most important collection and most prestigious collection in the world. So things are not as they seem because Alexandra and his daughter have been estranged for a whole variety of interesting backstory reasons. And we go back and we explore all of that and we can see faults on all sides, including um his former wife, um, Camille, the daughter's mother. But um, Alexandra sets up, uh, at terms of his will, are that um, the owner of, his, of this collection, the, the inheritor of this collection, is not his only daughter, Camille, and is not his, ja- the Jap- his Japanese protege, Izzy Tomini, um, played brilliantly by a Japanese actor, Tomisha Yamishita, who is who is just mesmerising every time he's on screen. But Alexandra in his will says, both of you have, I believe, the most exceptional nose and exceptional palates. I have taught you both and I, and we are going to have a test. And the test is we will have a blind tasting and you will tell the panel what, what, what the vintage is, the vineyard, where from, what year, And these are the terms. And I think there are three testings. As I said, I'm only up to series four. So they've only had the first testing thus far. But it is fascinating. Camille is torn between um, she was pulled away from her father when the marriage broke up, when she was an early young teenager. He had spent so many years with her as a child, taking her through vineyards, explaining grapes to her, encouraging her sense of taste and smell with wine and oversteps the mark when he actually encourages her to have a sip. Or does he? And the mother, of course, that's the end of the relationship. Meanwhile, Issei is in Japan, has enrolled in one of um, Alexandra's courses where Alexandra is now living, and develops this extraordinary palate and becomes his protege. So who's going to win? Where does this leave us? Is this a true story? No, it's not a true story. It's just but a it great is, film. It is really brilliantly acted. Actors, um, I mean, you probably don't know their names. Camille Fleur is played by Fleur Giffier, who's a gifted um, young um incredibly absorbing on screen um actress. She plays Camille the Daughter, uh Alexandre Legere um through the ages. It, it, it's because we go back of course to the backstory. Highly, highly recommend Drops of God. If you love wine, you'll be wanting to pour a glass in the first half hour, I suggest. It's a film? It's an it's a eight-part series. Oh series, sorry. On okay. a, on Apple TV. So that is Drops of God, highly recommend. Caro, can you kick us off with the um, food element because I just have a little um, gift today for um, yourself and Miss Jane. I've actually bought in the cake that I um, am going to talk about, but I'm going to give you both a taste test. So I just have to go into a bit of Geraldine Dillon preparation here while you talk, <laughs> you talk about the lemon olive oil well, cake. Mine is
1: incredibly simple. And thank you again to Cobram Estate. I actually used the light the Cobram lighter olive oil for this recipe. And as I said, it is called the lemon olive oil cake. Very, very simple. You get a 20 centimetre cake tin. So a, one of this, it always looks so small, the 20 centimetre cake tin, but you can't believe how far it actually goes goes on. I
2: absolutely agree with you. I thought this is not going to make enough for six people, but you're right. It
1: makes enough for about 12. Um, this actually, the, the trick to this one is rubbing the lemon zest into the sugar. There are literally six ingredients in this cake. There is a finely grated zest and juice of two lemons. There's 300 grams of castor sugar, three eggs, 300 mils of full cream milk, 300 mils of the extra virgin cobra Estate olive oil. And I use the light one, as I said, but I don't think any, you could use either. You could use any. And 300 grams, which is two cups of self-raising flour. So simple. It starts off in, with um, a large bowl rubbing the lemon zest and sugar together. Once the sugar sort of gets fragrant and damp, you add the eggs, you whisk, add the milk, the olive oil and the lemon juice, and then you add the dry ingredients. It takes 45 to 50 minutes to cook. It is absolutely beautiful warm. You don't need a glaze or any syrup over it. It is very nice with yogurt, sour cream or ice cream. It is a lemon olive oil cake and curry. It's from one of our favourite cookbooks, Ostro, and I highly, highly recommend it. Now that sounds you... great.
2: Now I'm just preparing here, so this is. Um... And Miss Jane's got this detail of the lemon
1: olive oil cake, and I This notes. is the almond pear and olive oil cake.
2: So just. Um...
1: I'm so impressed with these. With these. Um... Side effects, not sound effects.
2: Is that yoghurt you've served it with? Yeah, yoghurt with a tiny little bit of milk, so it's a bit runny. It's just plain Greek yoghurt. But I've added in um, probably a couple of um, um, teaspoons of vanilla for this little...
1: I should say that pears are absolutely fabulous at the moment and lemons are everywhere. I don't know about you, Miss Jane, but my tree is dripping, which is why I had to find something... I had to do a recipe this week that not only involved Cobram Estate olive oil. Thank you, Corrie. Oh, the Marameco serviettes as well. Um, cobra but also um, lemons.
0: Oh, yum. Look at that, everyone. <laughs>
1: okay, Corrie, I want you to tell us the secret to your almond pear and olive oil cake.
2: Right. Okay. So I've never cooked this recipe before, but um, in celebration of Cobram Estate coming on board, how could I possibly resist this recipe? I haven't
1: had breakfast. I'm thrilled.
2: Um now I just have to call it up on my machine. Bit of icing
1: um, sugar lying around the studio, Miss Jane. You're gonna have a bit of a job after this. Yeah, well, maybe I think we so. we could actually clean it up ourselves.
2: Um now I just have to call it up because I've lost it on my screen. But um, And pear oh, sorry, Jane, can you just That is this delicious
0: curry? It's so it moist. Is. Do you find that with the olive oil carrot? It's the moistness?
2: Yep. And that's why it works so okay. well with the lemon mm. carrot. So, so you can you can access this potties via our show notes or also via delicious.com.au, which we've talked about before is a terrific go to uh, website for anybody searching. This is called uh, the almond pear and olive oil cake. The reason I wanted you both to taste it, apart from the fact that I love you and I wanted to share my cooking with you, which is what cooking a cake is all about, is the olive oil component here. Now I think, I don't know what you guys think, but I think there is just a tad too much olive oil in this. I used the classic, the Cobra Mistake classic. I also have at home and I always have it, Caro, in the the cupboard, the Robust, but I actually went to the supermarket and bought the classic because I was a bit concerned the Robust might might dominate the cake exactly yep yep so the uh the ingredients are um three small pears i just bought three nashies three eggs a cup of brown sugar plus a couple of tablespoons to sprinkle over the pears during cooking cinnamon a third of a cup of extra virgin olive oil now i used a measuring cup a a third of a cup i wasn't heavy-handed just not sure. Uh, half a cup of buttermilk, the juice of it, one mandarin. Beware of the pips. There are millions. A cup of almond flour or almond meal and one and a half cups of self-raising flour. And the recipe says gluten- gluten-free flour will also work. You preheat the oven to 180. You line, a, you line the round cake tin with baking paper and you sprinkle the base with two tablespoons of brown sugar and a little bit of cinnamon. You cut the pears into two, you scoop out the core, then you cut them in half again lengthways and you line the base of the cake tin with the pears, which of course now are sitting on a little bed of brown sugar and cinnamon. You beat the eggs with sugar until fluffy. You add a teaspoon of cinnamon, um, the olive oil, buttermilk, mandarin juice, and you whisk well. And then you fold in the almond flour and the sifted raising flour and gently incorporate them into a batter. Don't overmix it. Pour the batter over the pears and bake for forty to forty-five minutes, or until the skewer comes out clean when inserted into the centre of the cake. I would urge pod- potties, if you're a little, if you have a little bit of a um, peculiar oven as I do, I um, I set the timer on to thirty-five minutes and I pulled it out at the forty-minute mark. It was absolutely done. You turn it upside down, leave it to cool on the rack, and then you serve it, as you said before, karo, Greek yogurt, cream, whatever is you mixed. But today I've done the little yogurt and vanilla um, mix for you and sprinkled it with a bit of icing sugar. In presentation, I would suggest um, also that you might want to do some toasted almond flakes on top and a little bit of icing sugar sprinkled over it. That could be really pretty. But it's a beautiful recipe, isn't it? But I just... It's um, absolutely stunning. Just might, just <clears throat> a tad less olive oil. What do you both think? Oh,
0: it's perfect, Corrie. And no, it, I don't reckon?
2: think so. I think it's perfect too.
0: It's actually not too sweet because I was a little worried then that...
2: <laughs> no, it's not too having sweet. Having cake for breakfast. No, it's not too it. sweet. Isn't that lovely the way its it's... It's quite mm. a... Subtle cake, isn't it? Beautiful. Thank you.
0: It's absolutely oh, stunning. Pleasure.
2: That's a pleasure. So
1: that was BSF. Thank you to Red Energy. Thank you to Cobram Estate. We have so many wonderful olive oil recipes coming up. I've already got next week's, Corrie. You'll be pretty Oh, I have
2: next week's as well. So anyway, we'll take it in turns. But over the next few weeks, potties are going to be a few, fewer, with pleasure, Cobram Estate olive oil recipes. Mine is a hearty and simple,
1: using a lot of leftovers, winter midweek meal.
2: And a big thank you to Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria. So a place very close to our heart, a business very close to our heart and, Caro, our stomachs.
1: But let's move on to
2: um, our next segment, Corrie. You are grumpy. I am grumpy, Caro. There was a story in The Age last week which had the headline... I hate it when stories sort of don't deliver on the headline and I I don't blame the journalists necessarily. I do blame production people for, um, for either a cheap attempt to grab our attention or, in fact, not having properly read the story. So the story had the uh, headline, The Megan Effect Faces Its Biggest Hurdle Yet. And this was oh. the story of... Um, we know that Meghan Markle is a fashion plate. I actually love um, what she wears... Um, she's not a stick insect. um she has a lovely curvaceous figure, and I'm always really interested in her style. I think she has for years, I've thought she's had terrific style. And this talks about um, Megan going out for her forty third birthday forty second birthday dinner. And she and Harry went to a restaurant, the reporter says, near her $19.3 million home in Montecito, California. Well, that's sort of slightly irrelevant to the story. But anyway, she's gone out for dinner. (laughs) Gee, they're copping it, aren't they? they cop it every day. Oh, and I just kind of, I'm a bit over it, actually, to be honest. But anyway, um, Megan has set the Australian fashion industry on fire because she wore um, one of my favourite labels is Posse, P-O-S-S-E. Um Francesca put me onto this a few years ago, and I have a number of posse shirts and posse um, linen pants. Oh. I love them. Oh. And Megan has worn the strapless, horizontal striped, black and white, amazing posse dress, which actually retails for $289 on their website. And, of course, they've sold out as a result of this story. <laughs> but you know how – so I'm just going to show you. I don't know whether you and Miss Jane saw this, but it's a very wide kind of striped dress I love it it's strapless and it's basically like a tube dress and of course a lot of fashionistas and fashion experts will tell you um that unless you're, unless you're a kind of a size six or eight, avoid stripes because they do make you look wide. I know on, in television, Land Caro they're often a bit concerned wardrobe departments if women on air wear stripes. Oh, honestly, who, who cares? True, I love a good um, horizontal stripe. But anyway... Um, the reporter in this story has uh, has interviewed a couple of experts many, about how the fact that many women feel self conscious in stripe styles around their hips and bottoms and tend to avoid wearing them. Well, I reckon Megan has absolutely Megan has absolutely rocked this look, but I still can't get to the bottom of what the headline says: the Megan effect faces its biggest hurdle yet. <laughs> What's the hurdle? What's the hurdle? <laughs> That's quite funny. I mean, <laughs> I mean, so we, seriously. So, so we interviews a stylist, interviews the owner of a boutique in Melbourne. Um, the stylist says it's a style that does not suit any body type. What's the hurdle? I don't get it. There's no hurdle here. Is, the, is it the hurdle that women like you and I might um, not necessarily warm to, to horizontal stripes because perhaps they make us look bigger? Or I don't get it. Could somebody please explain? I don't get the the. I don't get this. I just think it's such a cheap shot. It's an interesting story. Don't get me wrong. Happy for Posse, and happy for Meghan Markle that she just looks so terrific, and they had a lovely night out apparently for their birthday. But I don't get what the biggest hurdle yet is. I mean, surely Meghan Markle has had a number of hurdles in recent times. Not to mention. Um, mental health issues when she was living in England. But I don't get this story at all. So it just made me really grumpy because I was expecting some big ta-da moment. And in fact, there was none. And I don't know what the hurdle is.
1: I think the lesson there, Corrie, is you have been sucked in by clickbait.
2: Is that what it is? You've
1: been clickbaited.
2: Well, thanks. Thanks for letting me know about that.
1: Do not believe those headlines.
2: Now, uh, we're going to move on to six
1: quick questions for Red Energy. And in celebration of the news that Sir Paul McCartney is getting back to Australia. Um, My question to you is what's your favourite Paul McCartney moment?
2: I loved Paul McCartney's response over the past couple of years or certainly when it first came out, the Peter Jackson documentary, um, The Beatles Get Back Doco, which I've um, reviewed in this podcast and I think is just one of the finest popular culture documentaries ever made. And Paul McCartney, Came out after that, uh, the release of that documentary. He was very emotional watching it and being a part of it, and giving permission for it, um, and commended Peter Jackson on his extraordinary editing of this um, real real life footage of when they made the um, the um, they were recording the was it the Abbey no the Let It Be album yep in the late sixties and Paul McCartney said. It was really extraordinary for him because um, not long after the recording of that, uh, although John had been the one who said that he wanted to split, Paul McCartney was the one that received most publicity because he had actually was in the process of releasing Ram, I think it was Ram, the Ram album, which was his solo album. And everybody saw that as Paul breaking away from the group when in fact John had said it. And Paul has carried, unbeknownst to any of us, a lot of baggage about this over the years. So it was quite incredible for him to see as it unfolded how things not necessarily fell apart, but how they drifted apart. But he also said that what was really fabulous about the documentary, quote, it shows the four of us having a ball. It was so reaffirming for me. That was one of the most important things about The Beatles. We could make each other laugh. And he said, John and I are in this footage doing two of us. And for some reason, we decided to do it like ventriloquists. It's hilarious. It just proves to me that my main memory of The Beatles was the joy and the skill. And I love that. I love the fact that he reflected. And I love the fact that he was open and honest um, at that moment. And that the doco had caused that. So that's my favourite moment there. Caro, what's your favourite Paul McCartney song?
1: It's a very difficult question. And, and speaking of John Lennon, I remember when soon after they broke up, remember he wrote that song "How Do You Sleep," which was a nasty, vindictive song, based uh, basically targeting Paul McCartney. Sorry, and,
2: I'm a, I'm a having my pear cake now. And Go one on. of
1: one of the lines in the song is the only um, the only good thing you ever did was yesterday, but that was just another day. Mm. And they're two of his most brilliant songs, by the way. As is the two of us. But I, if I'm if I'm going to go into and look, I loved Eleanor Rigby. I love Live and Let Die. I loved Another Day, as I said. My favourite ever ballad is Blackbird. My favourite post Beatles song is definitely Maybe I'm Amazed. I just really, really love Which that. Which I can
2: play on the piano.
1: Well remember, done. No, remember? Yeah, no, I remember. I do remember you remember playing me that on the piano. It's having a beautiful a bit of a go song. At that? But although I love Hey Jude and there are so many other brilliant songs, you know, Let It Be is one of them. Um, we Can Work It Out is just one of my favourite songs of all time. So I think I'll say We Can Work It Out. When you
3: see it your way, there's a chance that we might fall apart before too long. We can work it out. We can work it out.
2: Corrie, you have a Ballarat GLT. I do. Ficker Coffee Brewers. Janie, do you know this in your travels around Ballarat? I'm off the coffee at the moment, um, Corey. So oh it's, no! <laughs> it's been around for a year or so. I found it. I found, I found it last year when I was living in Ballarat last last June. Um, a, a really lovely place to go and actually work. They're very welcoming. But I was up there again. I think I called in there Thursday or Friday. I can't remember. And did a couple of hours work. I had a coffee, and then I had a smashed avo, which was delicious. And it just reminded me of the warmth of that place. And there are a number of terrific cafes in Ballarat. Fika is in Doveton Street North. It is the sister cafe to Johnny Alou. I can't remember the street's gone out of my head. I think it's Drummond Street, but it's right near the hospital. Um, and always busy with doctors and nurses and medical staff in there. But um, Ballarat is a city with many wonderful cafes. So if you're going to Ballarat... Call into Fika or Johnny Lou or any of them, really. They're all terrific. So that's my little GLT there. What hard and fast rules, Carol, must you always obey for age-appropriate dressing? Oh, my God, there are millions. Well, Do we obey know, them?
1: Interesting you should say that, Corrie. I mean, I know people who say you can't wear sleeveless. Well, if you've got beautiful arms and you're 70, wear sleeveless. I know people say you've got to be – you can't wear a skirt or dress above the knee. If you've got great legs and you're 75, you're still going to have great legs. Legs don't, you
2: don't, don't go off. Well, Coco Chanel used to say that, you, you know, your skin gets a bit wrinkly and that women shouldn't. But also, as my mother used to say, after menopause, your knees drop and you grow a beard. Yeah, well, if you, some nice legs last forever. If you've got
1: great legs. How is your beard, by the way? <laughs> oh, what are you talking about? How's your drop knees? Oh, mine are shocking. Yeah. I don't have a Especially beard. if I keep eating this beautiful cake, it'll be even worse. The other one that I'm always, you've, you've got to wear a bra. Well, if you're really flat-chested and you don't need a bra, don't wear a bra. I've decided there are no rules for age-appropriate dressing. Yay! Where would you like if you look good? And even if you don't, seriously, who cares? Just have fun. Speaking of dressing, it's,
2: what Well, was I'll tell you what, this cake is actually really good.
1: It's beautiful. Speaking of dressing, what was your most successful purchase in Europe recently?
2: Well, you would have seen a bit of this in Florence, but do you remember on... Day one, I think, in Florence, I bought a pair of navy linen pants from COS. I reckon reckon they're about 90 euro. I thought they might have made them in four different colours. Did I haunt COS for the rest of my trip? Everywhere. In Verona, in Milan, (laughs) in Rome. I just kept searching for, were there other colours? No, there were not. But these navy linen pants, they're quite a tough linen, so you don't have to worry too much about um, crinkles. And boy, did they have many outings. Went with the black T-shirt, went with the navy T-shirt, went with the white shirt. They were varying combinations. And I wore them out to dinner. I wore them during the day. And um, as we know, you can always dress up an outfit with a bit of jewelry. So they went out at night time a fair bit. But if anybody is going to hot climbs over the next six or eight weeks... Don't dismiss linen. Don't think, oh, I won't have access to an iron. I mean, linen. some linen actually looks good as crumpled. But if it's a dark colour, you don't really notice the, the, crimp, the crinkling. And you can roll it up, as Caro does when she takes on her hand luggage to go away for five weeks.
1: I always <laughs> travel with linen.
2: Just roll it up. And I tell you what, a pair of good linen pants that you can wear with um, a, a pair of runners or a pair of... Um, you know, flats or as I would with my Archie um, um, flip-flops, highly recommend. Caro, what's your amazing – you're still – you're stuffing your face with the cake. Um... You served me a piece (laughs) of cake. I'm sorry. It's a bit hard not to keep eating it. Um, I'm now putting my fingers in Jane's um, (laughs) – in John Jane's plate with her yogurt. Um, Tell me, what was this week's amazing fact? I just want to talk, and I won't talk for too
1: long because we've been banging on for hours – I want to talk about the AFL Commission, which at the start of 2021, so take your mind back, Corey. That's almost three full football seasons ago now. Lost two commissioners, including Jason Ball.
2: And we were just coming out or in and out of lockdown, weren't we?
1: Yes. Um, Jason Ball. Uh, Jason Ball played in Premiership teams for both West Coast and Sydney. He'd been a Sydney Swans board member. Um, Related to cuddles? No. And um, and Kim Williams was the other commissioner who um, vacated the role then. I, th- I think it was their, their terms were up, whatever. Kim Williams, most famously, I suppose, the News Corporation boss for mm, a time. Foxtel. And, yeah. and Foxtel. Um, the AFL never really made a big thing about the fact they were going to replace these men. They still haven't replaced them almost three football seasons later. There have been two lots of presidential committees, nomination committees, and for the first time in the history Of the AFL and its independent commission, there has been no former footballer on the commission. There are a couple of former club directors and presidents, um, including Gabrielle Trainer and Andrew Newbold, but there is no one who has ever worked on at a football club.
2: That's outrageous.
1: The clubs are getting more and more upset about it. Richard Goyder makes the odd oblique comment occasionally, the AFL chairman, including earlier this year when he he said, oh, well, I was criticised for having too big a commission. Now I'm criticised for having a too small commission. Complete bunkum. No-one ever criticised the commission for being too big. One of the reasons it's great to have commissioners is that they're almost spotters. They bring expertise, you know, be, be it business, media, legal, um, there's so many different levels of expertise. There's an indigenous commissioner, Dr. Helen Milroy, who may or may not be there for much longer. Um, they represent all different manners of society. and and they're seen to, they seemed they, to they were devised as an independent board because the game was being run by the clubs and the clubs were all obviously self-interested. But we had a um, we had a derby in Queen in Sydney last weekend. Gabrielle Trainer was there. As a former um, Giants director, she always goes to the footy in Sydney. No other commissioner, AFL executive. There was a queue clash the week before. No commissioner was there, no AFL executive. The AFL are so thin on the ground at the moment and their commissioners are not meeting at footy clubs the way they used to. And frankly, I believe they're out of touch with the game. So all manner of people... Not, Not all of them. As, Would as, you say all commissioners were out of touch no, with No, 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 no. As as a body, mm. I believe some of the... And, and Gillen McLaughlin has basically been very much an autocrat run, and has run the game in most areas brilliantly for some years now. But he's on the way out. Now, so, sorry,
2: is your fact the fact that we have not replaced the two commissioners?
1: We We have no football expertise on a commission that runs football.
2: Mm. And
1: Lee Matthews has been mentioned and spoken to and rejected. I'm not sure why maybe not rejected. Andrew Ireland, who's on the Sports Commission and pioneer, former player, pioneer of football in Sydney and Queensland, oversaw premierships by that Brisbane and Sydney, for some reason, wasn't invited on the commission when he retired as CEO of the Sydney Swans. Now, in a bizarre move, Gillen McLaughlin has approached Patrick Dangerfield, who is a current player, to join the commission while still playing.
2: Oh how ridiculous! He, I mean, well, Patrick Dangerfield. Paddy could do that job, but not while he's a player.
1: He's such an independent. It has to be an independent role. He he is a brilliant wearer of many hats, Patrick Dangerfield. But he's he's um he's running the he's a player boss of the um, chairman of the AFL Players Association, and they're they're trying to negotiate a pay deal. I just find it so extraordinary that the AFL has muddled and mumbled its way through nearly three full football seasons at a time when it doesn't have a full-time footy boss at the moment and there is no former player deemed appropriate to join the commission. Is it a fiefdom? I don't know what's going on. Any
2: any truth in the rumour that Linda Dessau might come back as Chief Commissioner?
1: Uh, She was looked at, but um, I gather not. I gather not. No, she, she probably would have ended up being chairman of the commission had she stayed, but she became governor instead.
2: She did, but it would be good to get her back again.
1: That's a show, Corrie. Thank you to our sponsors, Red We've energy. covered a lot
2: of turf, Caro, and As- eaten
1: a lot of cake. Oh, it's delicious. Thank you. Australia's most trusted and awarded um, energy providers, Canstar, made that call three times, and Prince Wine Store. And a big welcome again to Cobram Estate, who are joining us for our recipe of the week in BSF. Don't forget to get on board and buy a ticket to our film night next Tuesday night, which is August the 15th. It's um, August 15th. It's called The Miracle Club, starring Maggie Smith, and it's on at the Palace Cinema in Brighton, the Brighton Bay Cinema. Is that right, Miss Jane? Yes? Bay Street, Brighton. Corrie and I are both going to be there. And, Corrie,
2: what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger or eat too much cake. Thanks for listening to this
0: episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. We love hearing from you, so join us on Facebook or Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod or email us via feedback at dontshootpod.com.au and if you'd like to support the show the best way to do it is to tell a friend to listen. Your word of mouth recommendations are just so greatly appreciated and of course you can support our wonderful sponsors who make the podcast possible. Red Energy awarded CanStar's most trust energy providers three times maybe it's time you switch to red Cobram Estate Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil grown harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria and Prince Wine Store Bank Street South Melbourne and delivering Australia wide visit princewinestore.com.au Hi, it's producer Jane Neild here, and when I'm not producing Don't Shoot the Messenger, I have the pleasure of jumping in a podcast studio every couple of weeks with Shayna Blaze, of course, interior designer, Judge on the Block. Shayna, the HomeStyle Podcast, it's DIY, it's design, it's renovation. What can people expect? Ah, solving problems, I think. You know, we get, you know, we have our little hashtag, what would Shana do? So people have questions of like, you know, I'm going through this at the moment. How can I solve it? But it's also talking about how we can save money. What are the new things coming out? And just talking how your lifestyle works with your home rather than you trying to fit into your home. You'll find a link in the show notes to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And you can subscribe to the Homestyle Podcast with Shana Blaze wherever you get your podcasts.